Each one of us is a perfect crystalline snowflake. There's no one just like the other. Stories, however, remind us that we're all just made of snow. I'm Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Today's episode is centered on the love story of my marriage. Uh, It's all about Dana and I. uh, The quick version of it, and I won't belabor it, but the quick version of it is that Dana and I had been in the same room a number of times. The first example of that that I that we can kind of go back and track was in 2010 I was directing a show called the Edward Hopper Project and it was at the storefront theater downtown and she wanted to see it so she brought a friend at the end of the show the Nighthawks set piece looked so much like the actual painting that people wanted to get on it and actually have their picture taken on it because it looked like they were in the painting. It was really rather remarkable um, how that panned out. And at the end of the evening, apparently someone probably it was either me or it was one of the two stage managers took a picture of Dana and her date um, on our set. So that's the first time we were in the same room as far as we know. So this was obviously not a love at first sight thing. We encountered each other a number of times. At one point, uh, Peter Sagal, uh, who's the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and I was the house manager, asked, he had just uh, gotten separated from his wife and he was dating someone, and he asked if I would seat them in the front row, his date and her friend, and I did. It turned out that her friend was Dana. So we met, and there's even a picture. They they took a selfie, and it's the two of them sitting in the chairs, and I'm in the background seating people. So we'd been in the same room a number of times. I met her officially at uh, the Liars Contest that Scott Whitehair puts together every year, or every couple of years, whatever it happens to be. And she was helping with the stage management, and I, management. I was uh, the returning champion of lying. I was backstage, I was talking a mile a minute, I was getting excited, I was getting ready to go on, and she looked over at me and told me, said, could you just, how about, I can't remember exactly the words, but it, why don't you shut the fuck up, was the gist of it. You know, you should just shut the fuck up. Why can't you just shut the fuck up? Something to that effect. And I just looked at her and I was stunned. Suddenly I saw her as if for the first time, and then I wanted to know who she was. We went out on our first date 
and I was completely smitten. We went on our second date, and then she was completely smitten. And on our third date, I asked her to marry me. So it was about two weeks into it. I asked her to marry me. She said yes. All of a sudden, things get, oh, is this serious? Are we really going to get married? Is this just us talking big? What the hell? I went out of town. I went to Kansas. I, My mother basically was like, she didn't caution me. She didn't tell me. She said, here's the ring. She'd had a ring that had been sitting in a box for 35 years. It was a beautiful sapphire ring with 22 diamonds uh, and platinum. And she gave it to me. And I came home, and I wrote while I was at in Kansas, wrote the story that I'm about to play you, the Yeti. I came home. I immediately called her. I went over to her place. I read her this story. And at the end of the story, I pulled out a box and I handed her the ring and asked her to marry me again. She said yes again. Four months later, we were in Las Vegas and we got married. We are approaching our third anniversary. It has been the best marriage I could imagine. She is the most amazing person. We fit in so many different ways, and I love her unconditionally. It's a grand uh, journey, grand journey that we're on. So the first piece that I recorded for you that I want you to hear is my reading of The Yeti. It started with an episode of In Search Of, starring the post-Spock Leonard Nimoy. For the most part, my impressionable mind was fascinated by, but ultimately impressed by, the myths of the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and the plethora of UFO abductions. Crop circles? Nah. But the Yeti? Something about the Yeti took hold of my imagination and drove me in an obsessive sort of way. I understood the Yeti, a creature of solitude, the only one of his kind, destined to roam the planet with no companionship but his thoughts and his passions. Sure, I held down a solid job and had a relatively stable social life. Late at night, however, I could be found pouring through ancient texts I had procured through eBay and huge tomes of newspaper clippings, some so yellow and old, touching them felt almost destructive, all detailing hints at the existence of the abominable snowman, the Yeti. The scientific community generally regards the Yeti as a legend, given the lack of conclusive evidence, but it remains one of the most famous creatures of cryptozoology. Analysis of samples associated with claimed Yetis found a sequence of mitochondrial DNA that matched a sample from an ancient polar bear jawbone found in Norway that dates back to between 40,000 and 120,000 years ago. Once in a while, I'd let someone close to me know about my compulsion to find him. Inevitably, these friends became distant almost immediately, and I could catch a whiff of, whiff of alarmed pity when I'd see them in the hallway or the cafeteria at work, so I stopped telling people about him. My search was to be a lonely one. Like the Yeti himself, I was resigned to this reality. Two weeks ago, my life changed. Having just returned from my 15th trip to Nepal and fresh out of any more vacation days for the fiscal, I went to, the, to stick the key into my apartment door only to find the door both unlocked and slightly ajar. I entered the hallway and caught the distinct smell of cinnamon and cherry pipe tobacco. 
I followed the scent and smoke slowly and turned the corner like a spy in a movie. In my living room chair sat a huge monster of a man, fully eight feet tall and covered from head to toe in blinding white fur, like Sully from Monsters, Inc., complete with the jaw filled with razor-sharp fangs. He was smoking a calabash pipe, and it seemed he had completely emptied my refrigerator prior to lighting up. You've been looking for me, have you? I was stunned into silence as if my lips were glued shut. Does it speak? He sounded like, Sam Elliott? I stammered out. No. Yes. He sounds like me, but no. I am the Yeti. You aren't real. You don't believe that I exist. After spending all your expendable time looking for me, are you stupid? Perhaps brain damaged? If I'm not real, who ate your leftover chicken pot pie? I saw him in my chair. I heard him. I smelled him. But my mind was working furiously to comprehend the reality of his existence. Why? Why you? Why now? Lots of people have been searching for me, and I've become expert at obfuscation. I know exactly how to make myself blurry when I sense a photo being taken, but you are different. You seem to think I'm lonely and lost. You're the lonely one in this equation, and such loneliness in pursuit of a grail is it's hard to miss. I'm supposed to be alone. It is my destiny. You, on the other hand, are not. You are not of my kind. You are supposed to live and laugh and love. Your capacity for love is your greatest gift, and you're squandering that gift. Even a Yeti can see this, that you give that love to those unworthy of it or without a similar capacity is a tragedy. Uh, I don't know what to say. Say nothing. Just listen. The Yeti doesn't show himself to just anyone. Here's the deal, kid. One day you'll find her. You won't be looking for her. She will, like the Yeti, appear, and you will know. When she does, do not waffle. Make room for her. There is a gaping hole inside you that is hers to fill. Give her your everything. Love her, protect her, listen to her. Endeavor every day from that moment on to let her know she is the one. Got it? How will I know it's her? How the hell should I know? I'm a freaking Yeti, remember? I dated a unicorn once about 200 years ago. Didn't go well. No females of my kind around, so I'm fairly limited on that sort of thing. Yeah, suffice it to say, you'll just, you know, you'll know, okay? I nodded numbly. Thanks for the grub. Pineapple was a nice touch. And he reached into his fur and pulled out a tiny box. His giant paw gingerly placed it in my hand, and, and, and he stood, all eight feet, and bared his massive fangs. This is not for you. This is for her. As he left the apartment, I swear he seemed blurry. Like I said, I handed her the ring, and we got married, and we're married to this day. It's wonderful. Uh, At one point during um, our, she's a poet, 
and I obviously am a storyteller, and I was asked by Adam Webster at the Side Project uh, Theater Storytelling Festival if I wanted to perform, and the story uh, theme was home, and he asked, he had met Dana at our housewarming, and and asked if she would want to do something with me, and they'd not done any duets before, and I asked Dana, and we talked about it. Again, she's a poet, so we started working on a dual piece about home and what that meant, and we performed it at the Side Project Theater uh, Storytelling Festival. Very, it went very well. The second time that we performed it was at Story Sessions at City Winery. It's uh, Jill Howe's brilliant uh, afternoon sort of brunch storytelling thing. And if uh, you don't, if you haven't seen it, you should because she always curates with some remarkable storytellers. And the City Winery is a really lovely place, so I highly recommend it. This was recorded at WBEZ in the studio, and this is our version of Home. Well dressed in the middle evening, Thomas Bruce German, father of my father got into his modern black luxury car, sleek under the street lamp, and began to drive. He drove, and just as he was nearing what he thought was his destination, he felt a sense of the scenery in front of him changing, shifting into still more beautiful hills and long, still longer vistas. Time passed. Something was amiss. He couldn't shake the feeling he might be quite lost. It happened this way sometimes, the momentary anxiety. Simply, he had never been on this road before. In a while, he came to realize that he had died behind the wheel and was now driving along the winding, exquisite road to heaven. He drove as if going back in time, passing many women whom he recognized as good loves of old, Well-dressed and erect, they ambled gently and easily along, smiling their own beautiful smiles of recognition. They waved as he passed. The scenery grew bright, as if he were driving into the dawn. The health and vitality of youth were returning to him, and along with those feelings came memories of wonderful times long forgotten. If he was lost now... He was very happy about it. His wide smile nearly made him look cracked, and he laughed in his voice with such mirth and love that it brought tears to his eyes. The car slowed imperceptibly, rolling to a stop. There was Patricia. She took her hands from her hips and got into the vintage cab, smoothing her dress to slide across the upholstery and over to him. She smelled of seashells and baby's breath. She smiled, genuine and majestic with her white, perfect teeth and red lipstick. Her side-parted wave of black hair glistened. In a moment, she cooed, What took you so long? Somewhere out of dream composites comes my imaginary life. The house I grew up in, in my imaginary life, has lots of windows. It is a white house with black shutters on a street named something like Edgewood. Not a big house, but not small either. Dormers indicating attic space and a long, wide sun porch. 
there is a park nearby and sidewalks. In my imaginary life, it is summertime, and my father has just brought my brother and I back from somewhere with a beach. He travels for work and takes short vacations just with us so he can have our undivided attention. He gets it, but not because he spoils us. We never ask for anything we know we won't get. And here in this imaginary life, my mom enjoys the quiet weekends. She slips jeans up over her hips and patters barefoot to the porch with a single cigarette and a lighter in one hand, looking out into the yard and street until the butt gets low and the sun gets high. She props it between her pout for the last long drag while she treads through the still damp grass to bring our big wheel trikes in from the lawn. Somewhere, snapping out of my dream composites, comes my real but improbable life. I can only dream of growing up in one place with one father and a foundation built on something more solid than sand. I can only dream of it because I was hatched by a 15-year-old mother with, generally speaking, poor taste in husbands. I hallucinate that spiders are crawling on me. I am in the hospital, dying of a disease for which there is no cure. My grandfather, the father of my 20-year-old mother, brings me an underdog plush toy. They know I'll pull through when I make underdog fly above my chest for a brief moment before passing out into a drug-induced haze. My best friend is four years older than I am. We vandalize buildings in the neighborhood and terrorize his 18-year-old mentally retarded brother who routinely beats the snot out of both of us. I spray-paint graffiti on a neighbor's wall, and my then 24-year-old mother is confronted by the neighbor who towers over her. How does she know the graffiti is mine? I signed my name. Later, after the beatings my stepfather pounded into her, my mother packs us up in the middle of the night, and we escape him. We live in a trailer in a trailer park in Phoenix, Arizona. My 26-year-old mother can only afford a swap meet bicycle for me. It's a girl's bike. It is aquamarine. It has a banana seat. I ride it like a motocross and try to jump ditches and am reckless and stupid to pay to fix the front tire after smashing it on a rock ledge. My friend and I start a pancake stand because there are already so many lemonade stands. We make no money, but eat all of the pancakes. What a great summer. She pays some bills and finishes painting the birdhouse she built. She starts a book and cleans out the space under the kitchen sink. Drinks a beer, slowly. Orders pizza. Puts some photos in an album and finds a sweater she'd been looking for under my bed. When we come home, she's done something innocent and or beautiful that she's never done before, like put little exotic chocolate candy in a dish on the coffee table or put up red Christmas lights in the bathroom, just because. The creepiest guy on the imaginary life's imaginary block is just a pair of old sideburns and a cigar, walking his bicycle in the road, half-shaded by massive elms. Baseball cap and dirty white overalls, leaning into Italian flesh. He is owing smoke out a curled mouth, thinking of a few French women he once knew with their short cuts of hair and painted lips. They are pulp novels and backroom theater shows coming across black and white. From the house painting job to the stockroom at the beer store, 
Old sideburns haunts the landscape of a town that never changes. He is a flattened pizza box or a broken bottle from time to time when he is not cigar and bicycle. The spilled paint stain on the concrete steps out back on break. Or the college girl in heels using the alley as thoroughfare while he squints into the setting sun. Her name is Debbie. She's a foot taller than I am and on her way to being a successful pop music star. She's my girlfriend, although we've only French kissed once. I am Model Kim's oil in the sixth grade production of Fiddler on the Roof, but she is Golda. Mom, at a ripe old age of 28, is at every single performance, but doesn't like Debbie much. She doesn't tell me until long after we move away. A new stepfather in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. He's an attorney and is well off. He owns an adobe-style house with three floors, 14 rooms, and a 12-acre man-made lake. He would prefer that my 30-year-old mother was single, but she brings with her a 10-year-old daughter and a teenage boy. Mom feels do some respite from the single mom with two jobs thing and drinks a lot. We do not get along for a while. My mother sits quietly, her face turned away from me as I tell her about seeing Superman the movie the night before. I pour myself a glass of orange juice. My mother turns slightly and I can see the bruising from a beating she received from stepfather number four. I see red, dark, brownish red and I feel glass break in my hand. The juice stings the cuts in my palm. I'm no longer a small child, and no one will ever hit my mother again. In college, I start a non-sanctioned fraternity for those in the band who are either too young to drink legally or haven't the money to go join the other groups, the collegiate homeless. We are called the social tumors. At basketball games, a teenager attends with his father and is warned to avoid the band because we were out of control and dangerous. My 37-year-old madre comes to visit. She sleeps in my dorm room and has to pee in a cup in the closet because it's not a co-ed dorm. She is still proud of me. These imaginary life parents, though. They can't get enough of each other, and they don't split up. My mother stops my father in the kitchen as he cuts zucchini for dinner. They think just because brother and I are not in the room that we are not paying attention. Inserting herself, my mother shimmies her ass up on the counter. She reaches for my father's face, kissing kissing him longingly and open-mouthed, making out like they probably do at parties when we really aren't around. My father's hands move across the back of my mother's waist, and he melts into her, forgetting everything. Her name is Deanna. We are married in Arkansas. My mother brings her new husband, the man I'm finally happy to call my father rather than step to the wedding. My bride's family doesn't like me, and this bristles the fur on my mother's neck. The wedding is tense. They throw gravel at me instead of rice or birdseed. The marriage doesn't last, but I'm thankfully not leaving anyone to call someone a stepfather. Mom didn't really like her much anyway, but doesn't tell me until after we divorce, although I kind of know. <clears throat> I'm in Chicago now. I play trumpet teach children, learn to improvise on stage, embrace this place, but it never quite feels like home, but rather a place I want to call home. 
my home is in Kansas, working for my father, the one who is and is not step. And in my search for permanence or replacement, I marry again. Her name is Jen. She's funny, but ambitious. At Christmas, there is an apparent truce between my 50-year-old mother and my 25-year-old wife. There is a truce, but rarely embrace. Again, I leave the marriage childless and adrift. I move from neighborhood to neighborhood in the confines of the city. I move from her to some other her to a list of hers. I bring some home. It rarely goes well. And then, her name is Dana. We meet after circling one another for years. The third marriage. The first one my 60-year-old mother grabs and loves and rejoices. In my third trip down the chapel parking lot, I have found my home away from home, and my homes switch places. Now my home is with her, and my home away from home resides in Kansas. I also get a home in Harrisburg, and a home in home. And my mother loves her with a fierceness unmatched. She knows she no longer has to worry about me, and the wheel continues to turn, but this time with an ease that comes with a sense of belonging and peace. The car slowed imperceptibly, rolling to a stop. There was dawn. I took my hands from my hips and got into the vintage cab, smoothing my dress to slide across the upholstery and over to him. He smelled of dawn at the seashore and clean suede. He smiled, genuine and majestic and wide and at the precipice of laughter. His suave twin sandstorm eyes glistened. What took you so long? When, when he, he kissed, kissed her, they, they became, became angels. angels. And that's the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the journeys. We've been doing very well. I haven't really been advertising or promoting the podcast a whole lot lately and or ever. And uh, I've already got uh, like 303 subscribers, which all of you that are listening, thank you so very much for taking a few minutes of your day every week and listening to me just yarn on. Um, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm going to continue to do this. This first season, I guess, is going to be 13 episodes, and Dana asked me why 13. I said, eh, it's just sort of like a standard Netflix show, 13 episodes, so it'll be 13 episodes, and this is episode 8. I hope that if you enjoy listening to the stories and listening to what I'm doing, that you let people know. Uh, go online, go to iTunes, give me a review if you like it. If you don't, just let me know. Put that on there because there's something nice about that, and that's cool. Share it with someone you think might well enjoy it. I produce Peculiar Journeys pretty much in my apartment on the third floor above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. Everything's recorded on a Sure microphone. This has been a lot of fun. I'm going to continue to do this. And with that in mind, go do yourself a favor. Tell some stories, listen to some stories. The more stories you listen to from people that don't look like you or aren't like you or have had different life experiences, the more you broaden your boundaries of what is possible in the world. Thank you. Rock on. <laughs>